from AEI in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, and I hope you have been enjoying this new season of the show this year, where we're connecting college and university students with AEI scholars and end each episode with the same big life question, asking our scholars what they know now that they wish they knew when they were in college. Today, I'm thrilled to bring you this conversation between AEI's Jim Capretta and Executive Council student Arunab Sinha on the U.S. healthcare system and its needed reforms. But before I turn it over to Arunab, I want to talk to you about AEI's 2023 Summer Honors Program taking place in D.C. this June. This program is an all-expenses-paid experience for undergraduates to come to D.C. from all across, really, the nation and world for one week in June to learn from top policy experts. Some of the courses we're offering this year will cover the changing nature of warfare, taught by AEI's Corey Shockey, polarization and pluralism with David French, and the foundations of democratic capitalism with AEI's Michael Strain. In addition to their seminars, students will also have opportunities to connect and network with young professionals, other students, and other experts from across the political spectrum and public policy and think tank world. If you are a current college student or know someone who may be interested, head on over to AEI.org or you can just click the link in our show notes. And to stay most up to date with all of our work here at AEI as a college or university student, consider joining our year-round Executive Council program. You can follow us at AEI for Students on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And be sure to hit the subscribe button on your podcast player. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Arunab Sinha, and I'm a senior at Indiana University studying policy analysis and chemistry. Today, I'm grateful to be speaking with Mr. James Capretta, who's a resident fellow and holder of the Milton Friedman Chair at the American Enterprise Institute, where he studies healthcare, budget policy, and trends in health and retirement programs. Currently, he serves as a senior advisor to the Bipartisan Policy Center. Mr. Capretto also has decades of experience in the public service sector. In the mid-2000s, he was a senior fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where he studied and worked on healthcare policy and education-related matters. Mr. Capretta has published numerous articles and essays on reforming the healthcare system in the United States, including commentary on improving the effectiveness of Medicaid and retirement programs. Most recently, he authored a book called U.S. Health Policy and Market Reforms, An Introduction, a book focused on cost discipline. Jim, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Arunab. I'm glad to be with you. So today, I I want to kind of start fairly broadly. What message did you set out to deliver with your most recent book? Well, as you can tell from the title of the book, I really was interested in trying to present a somewhat comprehensive although because the topic is very complex, a little bit of a, you know, just the top surface of it, a comprehensive approach to bringing cost discipline to the delivery of medical care through market incentives as much as possible. Basically, my view is that, you know, we have a very vast and large health system, big facilities, big institutions, big insurance companies, big drug companies. And how can one discipline such a system? How can one make it be efficient and productive and do more with less over time. And there are really only two approaches. You can try to regulate it in that direction, try to control costs and limit 
expense growth and try to rule, you know, use rules to kind of push out of the system unnecessary spending. Or you can try to use an incentive system. And in a complex enterprise such as healthcare, I've always had the view that it was going to be difficult for the government in a political process to regulate more efficiency. It might be able to just put a cap on things and just say we're not going to spend more than X, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be more efficient. Uh, you can get to efficiency, though, and higher productivity through market incentives, where the actors voluntarily try to drive efficiency and lower costs because when they do so, they make more money and they increase their market share. So I've always been very interested in trying to get financial incentives into the center of this conversation. And how can you make markets work to bring about better outcomes? And so that, that, that's essentially what the book's about. Yeah, you talk a lot about that financial piece. Um, so something integral with conservative policies on healthcare is price transparency with procedures and medications, going back to that financial point. And so what are some current initiatives in place for increasing price transparency? Well, it's been very active in the last five years, which I'm grateful for. And I think it's going to have some beneficial effects. It's going to take time for it all to filter through our big health system. But Right now, there are a few rules that are in motion and being implemented. One requires hospitals to post online in machine-readable format. That is, it can be scooped up by internet searches. Uh, data that shows you know, what their prices are for just all the different codes that they submit to uh, insurance companies and to Medicare. So they use this coding-based transparency requirement to kind of push out into the public domain you know, tens and thousands and millions of prices that these hospitals are charging for all their various services, including uh, a list of uh, 300 shoppable services that all the hospitals are supposed to be uniformly posting their prices for. And this would be not just their sort of like retail pricing, but also the discounted pricing that they've negotiated with insurance plans. So all of that's getting pushed out. At the same time, insurance companies beginning last July were starting to be required to post what they have negotiated with hospitals and other providers of services, including physicians for their services. So insurance companies similarly are having to post online all of their pricing. And then a third element is a new requirement that says, hey, when a patient shows up and their self-pay, that is they're paying cash for services, uh, the providers have to give them a good faith estimate of what their out-of-pocket expenses will be before they provide them with services, if they ask for it. So if a patient goes into a doctor's office and says, hey, how much will it cost me if I get this done? That doctor's office is required now to start giving them that information. So this is a real sea change in the pricing atmosphere. It's complicated. It's still very cumbersome. It's still coding-based. But it's something. They're starting to push out into the public domain a lot of price information that previously basically was invisible and nobody could get access to. Uh, very good. I mean, there's a lot there that goes on with the price transparency. And there's looking forward going to be a lot of implementation issues and uh, a lot of procedures that go on for that. Um, looking to kind of political side of things, what is one issue that conservative health policymakers and the current more liberal administration may be interested in working on together in the next year. 
And to kind of dive further into that, what are you personally most hopeful for about the Biden administration and the Democratic Senate's agenda on healthcare policy specifically? Well, I, I, I'm very encouraged that this thing we just talked about, price transparency, is bipartisan. Uh, in other words, it was started, frankly, I mean, the provisions they're, they're hanging on to, to push all this, you know, these requirements onto the provider community and insurer community were enacted as part of the Affordable Care Act, which, of course, is, you know, was famously a, a democratic initiative, a, a, an initiative of President Obama, and it was passed really with, you know, only the support of Democrats in Congress. So that's that's quite a bit of bipartisanship because that came out of the, the Affordable Care Act. And then it was really expanded in terms of its use by the Trump administration in its rulemaking through 2019 and 2020. And so, you know, you've got both you know parties were invested in this now. And then the Biden administration comes in and says, hey, we're going to double down on what the Trump administration did. We're all for what they tried to do. And so they're pushing hard on it, too. So I think both parties are, are really invested in, hey, we got to get this out into the public domain in a usable and sensible way so we can start disciplining the outliers. So we don't have crazy pricing of some services by just a few outliers in the system. That's part of the motivation. So I think there could be some cooperation between the Republican House and the Biden administration on next steps. What can we do here to make this even work even better? It's a little bit chaotic now, not very consumer friendly yet. What can we do to take the next steps to really make this usable information and actionable information where beneficiaries, premium payers, patients benefit directly from lower prices? So another big issue I'd say that comes up is the communication of this healthcare policy. So it's a very challenging proposition, I think, communication of healthcare policy, because so much of the jargon and policies have these layers of complexity. And so how do you actively try to make these conversations easier for the general public to understand? So, for example, I feel like you've done a very good job of explaining just now how price transparency efforts have gone through. But just in general with health policy, how do you go about that communication piece? Well, you know, it, I don't think it's ever going to be a really simple subject. You know, people in a certain way want simplicity in healthcare, and I kind of I get it because I'm for that too. I do think there's excessive complexity. But one thing is that the the way to to think about this is is how do you create a system that takes some of the complexity out, so that at the point where the patient consumer is involved the big players have had an incentive to make it easy for them to understand what's going on. And so I think the complexity really is going to be in the policy world, Congress, the administration, working on how to structure so that it becomes in a certain way self-enforcing for cost discipline and easier navigation for the consumer, if you follow what I'm saying. So in other words, it's not going to be easy to get there, but the policymakers have to work through all the policy complexity to say, you know, we need to get to a, a simpler system for the consumer to navigate. Now, another aspect of your question, and maybe really what you're trying to get at, is how do we communicate? How do you get voters to understand what you're trying to do here? And what are the options and so on? Because that itself is a very complex conversation. 
And there, I think you can kind of, kind of get, you know, elevate the conversation a little bit as it's been done in the past and say to the average person out there that, look, this is a vast system. It's $4 trillion plus dollars at this point. And it's got a big element in the United States of private actors and public oversight. And the question is, how do we make this gigantic public-private system that we have in the United States work better? How can we discipline it more and make it work on your behalf? And uh, there, I think the, um, the options are to you know, have the government really take it over in a certain way and really regulate more aspects of it, as it's done in many other high-income countries, or to keep following sort of an American route, which is to try to make this very imperfect, very fragmented, kind of uncoordinated system a little more coordinated, a little less fragmented, and get the incentives right so our great private sector kind of starts working on our behalf instead of against us, <laughs> you know, that you, you harness this power of the private sector to, through regulation and direction in public policy to say, hey, we need you to really be the actors who drive more efficiency in the system and make it easier for everybody to navigate. So, you know, that's the, the kind of choice I think I'd present to the public. Great. Something you talk about pretty regularly is you talk about wanting to manage the cost of care, but at the same time, focusing on increasing access to medical care and coverage overall. And so how much room for improvement is there for us to increase this access and coverage? And what role does being uninsured play into access and coverage right now? At the next level, can we kind of discuss what your current views are on the feasibility of a public option to solve kind of some of these issues? Sure. Let's start with the first part. You know, there still is in the United States about a group of about um, 30 million or so, maybe a little less now, uh, people who are uh, residing in the United States and not covered directly by health insurance. They're not in a public program or, or they're not in a private private option, private coverage option. Uh, that's at any given sort of moment in time or over the course of a year even. So um, the question is, what is, who is, who are those folks and what can be done to try to get them into coverage? I'm of the view that people should have health insurance. That's not necessarily a universally held view. Uh, you know, there's people say, well, it doesn't matter that much for people's health. But I, I kind of say, look, I mean, none of us want to be uninsured, right? And there's a reason for that, because it brings great financial stress and worry, which is also not good for your health. And so... I think it's important for people to have health coverage, even if on some metrics, having health coverage doesn't dispositively show that people will be healthier, you know, over time. I think it will, it is beneficial. That's why people get it. And it also gives them ready access to care. If you get diagnosed with cancer, it's better to be, to catch it early rather than late. And so, you know, these, for all these reasons, people should be in health insurance. So how do you get, you know, more of the people of that 30 million group into coverage? One thing, the first thing to understand is about two thirds of those folks are already eligible for something. Okay. So, you know, there, there's a lot of people out there in America who are already eligible for Medicaid, but haven't signed up for a variety of different reasons. It's complicated. The sign up system is cumbersome. There's a lot of documentation you have to bring sometimes. And, you know, they, they aren't sick or something and they don't feel like they need it right away. Now, I would say there that if those folks who are eligible for Medicaid end up bumping into the health system for some reason, especially for an expensive intervention, 
the, the system will find out that they're eligible for Medicaid so that they, the providers can get paid, okay? So in a certain way, those folks, even though they're counted as uninsured, if something really expensive were to be required for them, they'll end up getting into Medicaid because they were already eligible. They just weren't signed up. And so that's part of, part of our challenge in the United States is how to get those folks signed up so they're, they're clearly in Medicaid and they know they're in Medicaid. So that's a big group. Similarly with people who are eligible for the Affordable Care Act exchanges and also for employer plans. I think there we need to just move the whole system to a little bit more automatic, not so cumbersome re-enrollment system. So that it's not such a burden on people to stay covered, okay? And, you know, that's a long, complicated topic, but I, I kind of, it's under the heading of something called automatic enrollment, okay? And a lot of things can be done there to kind of make it easier for people to stay covered year to year and ha- not have to go through some gigantic, cumbersome process. I think that would make a big difference. Um, so, you know, you can chip away at that 30 million number just by looking at the people, again, who are already eligible for something, but haven't signed up and can do so, and many of them would pay no more premium. They wouldn't pay anything in premiums. They're eligible entirely, you know, for entirely free coverage. Um, so, you know, let's get them. Let's get them into that insurance, and then we can t- take a look at what needs to be done. There is a one other group. Let me say one more thing about that, Arena. There's one other group out there that's highly sympathetic, and public policy needs to adjust, which is those folks who are uninsured and reside in states. They're poor. They're below the poverty line. And so they have very little resource. They have no, you know, no resources of their own really to pay premiums, but they're not eligible for Medicaid because those states have not expanded Medicaid pursuant to the provisions of the Affordable Care Act. I am of the view at this point that Medicaid is the option for this population. I mean, we're not going to create a whole new program very unlikely to serve them. If a state comes up with some great idea to cover this population, not in Medicaid, I'm open to hearing about it. But no states really have come forward with such an option. And so I, I would just you know, move forward and st- figure out a way to get these folks into Medicaid so that that group is at least guaranteed some, some level of health protection. Yeah, absolutely. I think coverage is a big goal that I think you want to really focus on. And 100% coverage, ideal. Uh, I really do wonder if we can ever reach that here with our system. Yeah, I kind of want to focus the last two questions on sort of our audience. We're looking more in the student direction, uh, especially young adults. So first of all, what should students know about how healthcare policy will impact them directly? You know, we, we recognize the financial piece of knowing that we'll soon be paying into the system of receiving healthcare benefits from our workplace, et cetera. But what else should we be considering well, I think one thing is that there is an aspect of, of um, our healthcare system that is uh, a public good, right? So, you know, when people start looking at healthcare, they, they start to think about, wow, you know, the United States spends all this money and we have worse health outcomes. But of course, there's a, just a very large number of factors that go into our worse health outcomes, a lot of them unrelated to the quality of the physician care people receive or the quality of the hospitals that admit patients or our, our emergency rooms or, you know, whatever. There's a lot of public health considerations out there that are affecting our outcomes that are really independent of how you organize our hospital system, our physician practices, it's our insurance system, okay? 
So you need to start thinking more analytically about what falls into what bucket in terms of our, our overall health. And there's a, a lot of things that should be done in the public health space, public goods health space to kind of benefit everybody. You know, obviously substance abuse questions are really central and mental health questions and disease control and you know, nutritional things, uh, being, have people having access to healthy diets and, and the ability to get the proper level of physical exercise in their communities. So there's a whole bunch of things that are important to health that are not about how you deliver physician and hospital services and drugs. So those are, that's one way to think about it. And then another thing for students to understand is that Again, I think we're, you know, the United States is a big country and very heterogeneous. I mean, there's a lot of diversity in our country. And the question is how to manage a health system that allows for different conditions and different circumstances and different points of view all to kind of coexist. And that means it's going to be difficult, I think, to have just sort of a one nationalized system. You know, you're going to have some diversity around the country you know, rural areas, urban areas, different points of view about, you know, levels of, of resources and subsidies and so on. So I think we're going to have to manage this diversity that somewhat manifests itself in our politics and how we design our health system too. Yeah, a lot of important issues I thought you brought up there. Um, and now for our final question, which we asked to all of our guests, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college? <laughs> it's a great question. And I'm not sure I know anything now that I didn't. <laughs> I mean, after all these years of working in this area, in some ways, the older you get, the more you realize, the less you know. Maybe that's one thing I would, I would tell you. You can spend a lot of time in healthcare policy, and um, it's humbling because every time you turn a, turn a corner, you realize some previous view you held might come into question because there's new data and new findings and a new research paper. So it's a humbling um, area to work in. But more generally about what, what I would say that I, I think I might know a little bit now that I didn't know then is that um, if you're thinking about um, education and continuing on and going beyond an undergraduate degree to some other more advanced expertise and further uh, studies, it doesn't, it doesn't, there's a thinking a lot of times and impressed on people a lot of times, I think, to say, hey, take a break, go out and work for a while, figure out what you want to do, and then go back. And then you'll have, you know, you can get your advanced degree later. I would say that after observing, participating a little bit in all of this and observing a little bit about all this, that's not so easy. <laughs> it's not so easy once you start life to then stop it and unwind it. And so some of the prior view from ages ago about, you know, continue on, finish what you're going to do educational wise, and then get on with your life, get on with a career and whatever personal commitments you might be involved in and, and other things that, that are important to life. Uh, then you, you can kind of commence with that part of your life and not have to look back and wonder about, um, you know, am I going to have to take off five years to go get that advanced degree I've always wanted? So, uh, you know, that's one piece of small piece of uh, uh, suggestion that I have that maybe maybe is not something you hear from other people, too. 
Yeah, no, appreciate it, Jim. And just overall, I want to thank you for all your time and uh, responses here today. I think we learned a lot today. So thank you for everything. You're welcome, Aruna. Thank you. It was great to see you again. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time.